Psalm 6, verse 1. David's writing and he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In shale or the grave or the pit, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What would it look like if the collective populace of the United States of America got broken before God and could pray Psalm 6 with a heart of sincerity? What would the Lord do? How would he respond? Is it beyond the realm of possibility that whereas the entire population may not repent, I would not say it's impossible just ask ancient Nineveh what happens when the word of the Lord comes in a timely moment. Because the whole city repented in sackcloth and ashes at the preaching of a reluctant prophet named Jonah. How much more if the church in the United States of America, who caught a glimpse, not just a fading glimpse, but a lingering look at the glory of the Lord and recognized his voice when he's calling his people to repentance, his church the followers of Jesus Christ, what might it look like if we repented on behalf of a nation and started getting our cues from the Lord instead of the, the hostile, divided, chaotic culture that we're living in? What would happen if we actually centered ourselves, not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday too, centered ourselves in the truth of God, in the glory of God, in the plan of God, and we became infatuated and awed once again with who Jesus Christ is as the eternal ruler of the cosmos and the Lord of all glory forevermore. What would happen if we could get to a place as the people of God where we would anchor in this prayer and we'd begin to pray it on behalf of a nation that knows nothing of the God of the Bible? I believe, friends, that revival is not only possible, but I believe it's being offered from God if we will do that exact thing. And so I want to tell you that we need to get honest with God. That's what the message title is, getting honest with God. And that means we have to drop our excuses, lay down our defenses, Put away our deflections when God pinpoints us for a place of repentance in our own lives. We have to stop the blame game and we have to start saying, God, be merciful unto me. I'm one of the sinners that needs help. And if we'll come to that place, friends, that's where God meets us. 
He will never and has never and won't ever despise the broken and contrite in heart, but the proud he will resist. And so as we go through these verses together, don't only think of yourself, but think about the possibilities of what might happen if this church, you, your family, this church, the church in this region, our friends at Twelve Stone, our friends at Hebron, our friends at Crossroads Community, our friends at the Faith Center, Pastor Arthur Breland and his congregation, Johnson Bowie and Dennis Rouse, and all of these in our area, Chris Lasky up in Jackson, Jeff Appling over in Commerce. What would happen if churches got together in the spirit and said, God, we will not settle for status quo anymore? We will not settle for in and out of your presence anymore. We won't delight ourselves in the delicacies of our culture anymore while we diminish the treasures of heaven. What might happen? A little too much for you at 9 a.m.? Buckle up. Let's talk about getting honest with God. Look at the first couple of verses, actually verse number one. And we're going to see the honest assessment within the prayer. We have to make an honest assessment just like David does. It's in these first three verses that the psalmist's senses are awakened. First of all, he's got this sense of divine anger in verse number one. Here's something that doesn't get preached a whole lot anymore. Divine anger. Yeah, you heard me right. Divine. God's anger. He says, oh Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Those are traits of God that nobody wants to talk about anymore as if he kind of, just because he poured out judicial wrath on Jesus on the cross, that he ran out of wrath against sin on that day, that he ran, again, ran out of anger against sin in that day. That's not true. Although we are justified and there'll never be a double jeopardy, I'll never answer to God for my sins because that answer has been given through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That does not mean that God winks at sin if it's in my life, my family's life, this church's life, or in the life of a nation. That he's still a just and a holy God. And whereas the full wrath was poured upon Jesus, we find out very clearly in Scripture that every son that God has will receive discipline. And if we don't receive discipline, then the Bible is very pinpoint in that, then we are not his sons and his daughters. But David is saying this. He's saying, Lord, I, I don't want to be on the wrong side of your anger. Lord, I don't want to be disciplined under your wrath. The indication and the tremble in his heart is that there has been a line that David knows that he has crossed. He's a worshiper of God, a man who had a heart after God, and yet we know from David's life that he would sin in ways that would cause us to blush or gasp. And David is in the backwash of some failure, it would seem, and he's saying, Lord, I have borne under your hand of discipline, but God, take away the anger, take away the wrath. This is the difficult process by which we come to full repentance. We have to own our sin and recognize that when we sin and we do not repent, that God, the holy God of heaven, is he's true to himself and he must bring discipline in order to bring us to repentance because when he brings us to print, uh, repentance, he then brings us back into fellowship. And so it is not that he is flying off the hook and angry, it's that he is motivated by covenant love. And when we became his sons and his daughters, he will treat us as any good father treats his children, even in the natural it's a good father that lovingly disciplines his children. It is a poor father that never brings discipline on his children when they're going a, a wayward direction. So David says, Lord, no more of the rebuking in your anger, no more of the distance, no more of the discipline in your wrath. 
So he sensed it was there, but he also sensed something else. He has a duality going. He sensed that he was in trouble, so to speak, with God, but he also sensed a hazardous weakness in his own body. In verse 2, he says, I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Interesting Hebrew words there, but the languishing just simply means it gives the picture of an individual who is bent and stooping and drooping. It's the picture of somebody that is saddled with a weight that they can no longer bear. And that is why David has finally come to this place where he's saying, God, no more of your wrath, no more of your anger, no more of your discipline on me. Lord, I am bent over with the weight. I am reaping what I sow, even to the extent, Father, that it's not just on my back, but it's in my bones. Friends, I want to just say this very clearly. God, give me loving boldness this morning. Help me, Holy Spirit, to speak the truth in love. I'm telling you, this is where our nation is. We see on the outside the bending, the languishing, but we have not seen the brokenness yet on the inside. We see the hostility in the culture. We see the outrage. We see the injustice. We see the prejudice. We see the perversion. We see it everywhere in our culture. That is the languishing. That is the bending. But what we don't see is a people that have gotten it finally down into their bones that have said, enough is enough. And we're waiting for our government to facilitate that. I will say as respectfully as I can, that is a joke to wait on any branch of the government to bring this nation back to a place where we are willing to acknowledge our sins before a holy God. Through government, that will not come. It must come from the church. But the church is learning how to walk in a languishing state. The church is learning how to operate bent over and stooping and drooping. And the church is doing anything to prevent the conviction that we need from getting into the marrow of the church in our bones to where we will finally say, God, we are ready to turn to you. I'm telling you, church, this is a word for us from the Lord. We must do this in these days. It's more important than your wedding plans. It's more important than you getting your degree. It's more important than the baby on the way. God bless the baby on the way. But I'm telling you, that baby needs to be born into a culture in a church that is saying, God, we honor you. God, we love you. And God, we repent. It's more important than the raise at work or the new house or the new car or the bills that need to be paid. We've got to get it down into our bones instead of just operating under some enforced industrial commitment to endure the languishing. Were you really born again just to languish? Were we, were we made the people of God through the blood of Christ just so we could be stooped over like the rest of the culture? Or are we to be upright, eyes affixed, my heart is fixed upon you, O Lord, seeking his face, believing his word, and pressing in for his glory in our generation? Well, of course we are. That's what we're made for. David sensed this weakness within him, and he says, I can't do it anymore. Church, we have to become like that. We have to say that this is a crossroads, a pivotal point in our, our history where the Lord is about to do something. As he said, I think in 2 Samuel 3, I'm about to do something at the sound of which uh, the, the ears of Israel will tingle. Meaning I'm about to release something that when you hear about it, it is gonna cause you to shudder. And I feel that we're in that, that, that same incubus right now. There was a sense of gnawing dread in verse number three. He says, my soul is also troubled. Watch that. It's, it's the burden on his back stooping him. Then it's the marrow in his bones troubling him. 
but it goes even deeper than the marrow in his bones. He says, my soul, my soul is greatly troubled. And then he asks the question, but you, oh Lord, how long? Here's where I think we must get, and I'm, I don't have a one-step, two-step, three-step to get anybody there, including myself. The only thing I know is to fall before the Lord in repentance and prayer and fasting and seeking and waiting. What am I talking about? We have to be moved in our collective soul. We have to reach a spot where it's more than words in our ears, more than songs on our radio, more than thoughts, noble thoughts that move in one ear and out the other ear because we're too busy, distracted with real life. It has to become a consuming thing within us that we understand that this generation is the generation that God is calling to seek his face. And when we seek his face, there will be a move from heaven and perhaps that move from heaven will not simply rescue a remnant, but maybe it'll saturate a continent. Maybe it'll awaken the slumbering giant of the church. Maybe it just, maybe, it might prolong this very anger and divine wrath that God one day will release. I know that's not popular. I've never wanted to be a popular preacher. I've wanted to stand before God and know that I was a truthful preacher. But wrath will come to the planet and America doesn't get a free pass. America may be one of the first bullseyes because to whom much is given, much is required. And church, we have experienced such prolonged grace over this nation and we are now rapidly moving away from the Father with a defiant fist and a middle finger raised. Excuse the picture, but that's our posture towards the Lord in this generation. We defy Him everywhere as a nation. And we see in the nation the results of that defiance coming to pass. And David is saying, oh, I see this in my own life. My soul is greatly troubled. And then he says to the Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord? How long? We don't know exactly specifically what he's asking, but I can tell you when I've been in David's position, overwhelmed with my own failures, feeling the repercussions of my negligence or my own rebellion and seasons in my life towards God. And I felt the hand of God coming hard upon me to squeeze the rebellion out of me, to squeeze the apathy out of me, to squeeze the excuses out of me. I remember praying, God, how long is this going to go on? You've got my attention here. Now you have my heart. And David says, how long? Here's the honest confession within the prayer. This is where he moves from just assessing what is going on and he starts saying, I want to pinpoint what I see you highlighting, Lord. I'm going to come into agreement with you. That's what confession is, by the way. It's always baffled me how people don't want to confess their sins to God. They want to excuse them. They want to relabel them repackage them instead of just agreeing with God confession is not telling God something he doesn't know about you God's never been surprised by anybody's confession as if he's his omniscience didn't quite pick up on what you're confessing prior to you confessing it confession is actually a, an English word that comes from the Latin word that simply means to agree with so when we confess our, our sin we're just saying God what you say about what I'm thinking or doing or believing what you say is right and I've been wrong. I come into agreement. I confess that and I repent of it. That's what it is. And so David's about to come with an honest confession. 
Uh, I'm going to take the second, the first part of verse 2, and I'm going to marry it to verses 4 and 5 so we can get kind of a better understanding about what David's saying here. In verse 2, he says, be gracious to me, O Lord. And then in verse 4, he says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give your name praise? Who will praise you in the grave? What is this confession here? The confession is this, that the helpless one, David, is now making supplication to the only one who can help him. David's got no leg to stand on. David's not saying, okay, Lord, you've got my attention. Let's come to the bargaining table. Let's figure out if we can find a place of mutual agreement. He has no leg to stand on. That's why he's saying, I need your grace. I need your grace. Lord, if I don't have your grace, then I'm doomed. I'm damned. I'm in trouble. He says, Lord, deliver my life. He doesn't say, Lord, empower me to fix my situation. He says, Lord, I am way in over my head and I need a rescue right now. Let me just say this. United States of America, of which you are in currently and you are a part of, and as this goes out on media, I pray that anybody that hears it will feel the connecting point. It does not matter that you may not be guilty of the specific ills of our present culture. It doesn't matter that you're not personally participating. There is tons of Bible precedent that when God judges a nation, yes, in the midst of that nation, even those that presume themselves to be innocent of the specific ills suffer with that nation. So you have a vested interest in receiving this word. Not only the present day sins, but the historical sins. Friends, I know this is going to rub some of you the wrong way, but we've got to hear this. We are a nation that has historical sins that we have never repented of. And the primary reason that we say we don't need to repent of them is because we weren't around when they happened. We, we, we founded the nation with the slaughter of Native Americans. And most modern Christians look at that as a historical footnote and they say, well, that was a practical necessity. I'm sorry it happened. It was a practical necessity of establishing our colonial dominion. And, and meanwhile, we just gloss over that people made in the image of God were systematically slaughtered as we took land. And there's never been a historical repentance of that. Then as we come up on the 400-year anniversary of the first Africans brought to this nation in chains, in enslavement, for the purposes of building wealth on this continent. There has never been a historical repentance, and I get it. Most white people will say, hey man, I'm against all of that. I, I never owned a slave, I wasn't alive. I, I don't own a slave now, but that's not me. It's us, it's us as a nation, it's a historical sin. You may wonder, is there any biblical precedent for repenting on behalf of our ancestors. Well, if you want to hang around to the second service, I'm going to be in Daniel 9, and I'll remove that question from your, your arsenal. It's absolutely there. It's, it's not only an option, it's a necessity if we want revival. As we look at 60 million babies slaughtered in the history since Roe v. Wade, and that's just the ones that are accounted for. And as abortion and infanticide has now reached the most barbaric proportions where in Congress they're debating and in local legislation, they're debating if a baby born alive, should we save it or should we let it die? Friends, that may not be you, but it is us. And if we think that there's going to be no divine discipline of that, then we do not know the God of the Bible. David says, Lord, deliver my life, save me. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. 
He says, I need your grace, and Lord, when I'm asking you to rescue me, it's not because I know I deserve it. It's actually because I want you to be true to your own name because you're a God of, of mercy, steadfast love, and I'm asking you, Lord, to display your nature and your grace and your forgiveness and your pardon because, Lord, under the weight I'm in, verse 5, I'm going to die, and in death there's no remembrance of you. What is he saying there? He's saying, Lord, if I die, my voice on the earth goes silent. Lord, let me live so I can testify of who you are, so I can tell this generation that you are the great and holy God of Israel, that you are my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David says, Lord, if I go into Sheol, if I go into that place of death, there is no remembrance from me on this earth for your namesake. So David does the wise thing that we all should do when we're asking God for grace and mercy and forgiveness. We never come in a posture of, hey, give me this because I deserve it. Give it to me, Lord, because it's really not big of a deal, especially when you look at her and what she's doing and him and what he's doing. Lord, surely you can just toss a little forgiveness my way. That's not the attitude of repentance, and our culture cannot afford to do that. We need to say, Lord, we don't deserve a thing from you. Come on, proud American spirit. Come on, hyper-individualistic Christian who's imbibed the individualistic nature of the world and we see ourselves as siloed with God, just me and my God. Come on. We've got to realize, friends, that we've drunk the Kool-Aid of the culture and we are now acting and operating with God as independent, proud people who might subconsciously think that God will gloss over sin because after all, I'm me. And we're us. And look, look at us, planet Earth. We are America. Have you ever known of a nation in history that did that? I do. Ancient Israel. They said, we got the temple. We got the Ark of the Covenant. We, we got the promises. We got the covenants. And meanwhile, they're sacrificing their children to Molech and Chemosh. And they're committing all sorts of licentious acts sexually and debauching and depraving themselves while they're bowing down to the false gods of their culture. And they're saying, yeah, but we've got Yahweh too. And Yahweh sent judgment through Babylon. Do you really think that if God released that on his covenant people, Israel, that the United States of America has any hope of escape? Here's the hope of escape. When the church repents. When the church repents and lives that repentance out, that's the only hope. We're not in control of how the culture responds, but we are in accountability for how we respond to words like this. So we go a little bit further into verses 6 and 7. Here's the honest emotion within the prayer, and I feel like this is how our country feels right now. We're just not being honest about it. First of all, he expresses what it feels like to be weary. He says, God, I'm weary with my moaning. Can we just think on our culture right now? Is that not the vibe in the land? Is this not a weary generation? We're weary culturally, angry culturally, bitter culturally, defensive culturally, and very afraid culturally. None of those are the fruit of the Spirit. We are a nation that is languishing with the weight of our sin because it seems to me that the Lord is removing his hand from inhibiting sin from running its full course. I feel like we're perilously close to a Romans 1 reality 
where we have told God for so long, this is what I want, this is what I will do. And God has said, no, that's not good for you. No, this is what I want, this is what I'll do. God says, don't do that. That is not my design for you. It's not your destiny. This is what we want, Lord. There's 290 million of us. And as a nation, this is what we want. This is what we're going to do. And it would seem like the Father is saying, if that's really what you want, then this is what's going to happen when I remove my hand. And the inhibition of our sin is gone. We've lost our blush. We don't know how to be taken aback anymore. Listen, there are things that shocked me when I read about them 20 years ago that I just kind of see as a footnote now. That's not good. But that's what happens when the culture imprints a heart to where we lose our sense of the acuteness of our rebellion towards God. And we don't feel it anymore. It's just another headline. There's a hundred more like it. Whether it's violence, whether it's sexual depravity, whether it's injustice, we just scan the headlines. We've, We've turned into a generation of people that are living with an Instagram mindset and a Twitter mindset. It's a picture and a handful of words, and then we move on to the next picture and the next handful of words, and we don't stop to consider our ways. And we've grown weary. David said, I'm weary with my moaning. The battle had gone too long. He was so bent over. He's saying, God, I can't bend any further. If you bend me any further, I'll break. That's the atmosphere of our culture right now. And David, fortunately, His fight was gone from him. He wasn't determining to to stand up straight in rebellion when God was trying to bend him in humility. And so that emptiness and that sadness and that weariness that comes from the disciplining hand of God finally became too much for David. And so he's turned his moaning into an honest, heartfelt intercession and prayer. Instead of just complaining and being bent, he's saying, God, I'm, I'm breaking. I'm weary with this. I don't want to live this way anymore. Some of you may be in the room and sin has run its course in your life. You've never come to Jesus. You've dabbled in it. Jesus is still kind of everywhere talked about in the South. I don't know that he's accurately talked about everywhere, but it's still woven into Southern culture. And some people, like I did growing up, you've got just enough of Christianity to make you feel miserable, but not enough to set you free and enter into the joy of the Lord. And the moaning and the groaning and the bending under the discipline of God's hand, coupled with the weight of your unrepented of sin, God's saying, I will take my hand of discipline off of you and turn it into a hand of deliverance if you will call upon my son. If you will believe in Christ. And if you're here today, listen, I would love to tell you that I was a Christian all through my childhood. and I got saved when I hit rock bottom. I didn't have anything to offer God except a ruined and wasted life. And that's where he found me. He said, that's good enough. As long as you're turning to me, I say yes to your yes to me. And if you're here today, I want to tell you that your weariness is unto something. It's unto your brokenness and your confession of your need for Jesus. And you can, you can make that confession today. David added to it his weeping. This is his honest emotion. He says, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. This is the opposite of a calloused heart. This is a heart that is feeling the intensity of the reality around him. Church, there needs to be a season where we become a lamenting church again. 
Billy uses a word from time to time in his devotions and his teaching and his prayer life, and it's a word that I had never used before, but I love it. It's triumphalism, that we're addicted to triumphalism. The pressure in church is keep it upbeat, keep it happy, keep it light, keep it short, send them away smiling because they will come back the next week and they'll bring their friends. And that is the spirit of the age that so many churches have, have, have dipped into. But friends, that's never going to bring what God is doing into, into fruition. It's not going to bring it into manifestation. We've lost our tears. We weep over the wrong things and, and don't weep over the things we should weep over. We weep over personal losses. We weep over offenses, personal offenses. We, we weep over the trivial things. Some of you watched the stock market last week and you rode that roller coaster because you put way too much confidence in the market and you weeped when the Dow dropped 900 points. Those are the wrong things to weep about. And meanwhile, we're not weeping over the systematic extinction of the unborn in the womb. We're not weeping over 400 years of unrepented, or unrepented of systemic racism. And I know that's unpopular. I don't care. I'm, I'm not asking you to ask whether it's popular. I'm asking you to investigate and get in the presence of the Lord and say, does it warrant repentance? We don't weep over kindergartners sitting in local libraries where they've invited transgender people in to make normalized transgender sexuality. That's happening to pre-Ks, pre-K and uh, kindergartners. We don't weep over that. We just say, well, I'm going to protect my kids. But wait a minute. How long do you think you'll be able to do that if it's never resisted? How long do you think you'll be able to immunize a generation when we don't resist the ills of that generation. Uh, it was, um, oh goodness, I forget his name. Edmund something that said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Does anybody know that guy's name? Thank you, Burke. I, I pray that you'll get your tears back. You won't be able to do that on the run. You'll have to get still and small and quiet and listen to the heart of the Father because I'm going to tell you, there's some things that the Son of God on His throne, I believe this, that He weeps over. He's not worried about the eventual outcome. He weeps over the diminishing of His glory on the earth when the church is called to bear that glory to the earth. And the church has lost her tears over the most important things. David said he was also wasted from warfare. Forgive the preacher in me. He was weary, he was weeping, and he was wasted. Verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now we start getting a hint at where David was struggling. What brought him to this place of brokenness? It was because in some respect, the hand of protection that David had long enjoyed over his reign and over his life, that hand of protection from God had been at least lifted, perhaps altogether removed, and now his enemies were moving in. The, the post-sin narrative for David involved a lot of trouble from his family, from people within the kingdom, from his cabinet and those people that he trusted, his, his counselors, Ahithophel, and his son Absalom, and they turned against him, and David found himself at times in reaping what he had sown. He would find himself isolated, and he says, the weeping continues, the grief continues. My eye is wasting away. Lord, I have cried so much that my eyes have gone dry. And he says, it's happening in the context of all my foes gaining an upper hand. Um, 
I'm just going to stay in the same thread. We probably need to take a hard blow at ignorant nationalism where we literally, I think, I don't know where it's hitting individuals, but I think in our culture, there is the presumption that nothing can happen to America. I thank God for our military men and women. I'm saying that with deep sincerity, but I'm going to let everybody know that a strong military cannot hold off the determined discipline of God if he chooses to bring foes to this nation. I think we've gone through many years now without experiencing um, the shock of a 9-11. Of course, we've had a few attacks, but I I just want to remind us we're not owed protection from the Almighty. If it's there, it's grace, but if we presume upon that grace, that grace will lift. And just as David had personal foes, I want you to know we've got plenty globally. And they're not just out there. They're within our borders. And so we come to a place where we're like, oh, maybe we ought to get real low real quick. Get low before the Lord and say, God, give this nation full grace. So fortunately for us, David does end on a higher note than that which he began. And so let's end it with verses 8 through 10. Here's the honest confidence. David expresses honest confidence. Let me just say this before getting into these last few verses. When you repent, you should have confidence before the God, uh, with the God before whom you repented. You should have confidence that when you are clean, when you are honest, when you have come into agreement, which has brought you into alignment with God, that there's no duplicity in you that you're not holding back any part of you before the Lord, but that he has you in fresh and full surrender and trust and submission because he is gloriously good and he will provide and protect and he's compassionate and slow to anger and he's merciful and he loves you. And when you acknowledge that and you come into alignment by repentance, you should have full confidence that you are restored unto him and from that restoration comes hope. And so when I say if the church will adopt the posture of David in repentance, we can once again assume the posture of confidence before God. And the reason why I'm coming at it with such intensity and concern and urgency this morning is because I am convinced that we have not repented before God. We've enjoyed our Sundays. We've tithed, some of you. We've we've served, some of you. We have... We have sung, we've prayed, we've seasoned a little fasting and a little prayer in there because after all, we're a fasting and prayer community. But have we repented? Have we gotten honest with God about who we are as a people? I don't know that we have. As a nation, I know that we haven't. As a church, I hope we are doing that. And as we do that, I want you to know we should walk collectively, communally, in a confidence before this great and glorious God who does not want to pour discipline out, but would much rather pour revival out and healing out and restoration out. And I believe that the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro about the earth, looking to find someone upon whom he can show himself strong. And if we will just be that people, hallelujah, I hope revival breaks out in every church in our region, but I don't want to wait on them. I want to posture myself 
And together with the other leaders in this church, we want to posture us collectively, corporately, communally, in a place of saying, God, we own this. We own this, Lord. We're not saying we deserve anything. We're saying we need everything from you. So he was confident that God was listening. He says, listen to this. I love this. So David just wrote a new stanza in the song. Remember, Psalm 6 was originally a song. Not a really happy song until you get to verse 8. And then you get a little fierceness in you. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. That's David talking, not the Lord. David's just repented, and now he's looking at his foes that he just mentioned in the previous verse, and he's gotten his heart right, and so he's now got confidence. He says, get out of my face, evildoers. Well, why should we, David? For the Lord, God Almighty, has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. It's an amazing thing when you get to that place, you say, I've done all that I can do, all that I can do. I've surrendered, I've repented, I've confessed, I've acknowledged before God, I've gotten honest with God, and now, Lord, I'm going to trust that you are the God who you say you are. Now, God, I believe you will act. Now, God, you have made my heart clean. You have purified my hands. You have given me that freedom from the languishing bend of my sin. And now, Lord, I say to you, God, I am aligned with you again. Thank you for restoring my soul. Thank you for washing me whiter than snow. Thank you for receiving me based on your grace, not on my deserving it. Thank you, Lord. And now, Lord, back this up as I tell my enemy, you better watch out. I love that, man. You know, Christianity is not incompatible with confidence. Hear me on that. Some people think that Christianity's mantra is all shucks. I ain't nothing. I'm just a little worm. And and that's just so stupid. I know you're not supposed to say that in the pulpit, so I'll say it twice. That's stupid. When you're walking with God, you just remember the abundance, the wealth of verses that speak to, to the realities of what it means for a human being inhabited by the Son of God, walking on planet Earth, and knowing the promises of God toward you are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so there are times where you can look at your enemy that shows up one day too many. And you can say, I just need to let you know, I've been talking to the Lord about my own needs. I got it right with him. And then I started talking to him about you. And I want you to know that he's heard my tears. That's what David says. Very interesting. He didn't just see his tears. He heard the sound of his weeping. And he heard his plea. And then he was confident that God had accepted him. Look, he just says, the Lord accepts my prayer. The Lord accepts my prayer. The Lord accepts my prayer. Church, we have to get to a place where we realize when we've done what he has called us to do, then we're walking in an acceptance that is attached to manifold blessings and power and grace and favor and influence. And we are primed to be the stewards of revival. It's not about an unending groveling before God. That's not what we're preaching here today. We're saying that a church needs to get right with God. Individuals need to get right with God. We need to scour our family history and repent over the ills of our ancestors and just say, it's not going to progress in my family, that my seed will not inherit what my forefathers planted in the garden of our family name, that we are free from that, and I declare the blood of Jesus over that. It's not going any further in my family. It's not going any further in my church. It's not going any further in my city, and it doesn't need to go any further in my nation. That literally, when God accepts us, he also accepts our prayer. Then finally, in verse number 10, Bethany, if you can come, or Gabby, to to the keys. Just come to the keys. We don't need the full team up. 
confident that we're being sustained. Verse number 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now watch this. In the early verses, he says, I'm troubled, I'm weary, I'm greatly troubled in my soul. He repents and gets honest with the Lord. And at the end of his prayer slash song slash uh, psalm, his confidence is that now the trouble that was so greatly in my soul has been lifted. My God has done that through his grace and his everlasting love. I'm right with God, and this trouble that was on me is now upon those who oppose me. We sing in one of our national songs, not that robustly anymore. We sing about God shedding his grace on America. Whether or not you can sing that with zeal is not my present concern. I'm just going to tell you it's theologically true. We have been a very graced nation. I don't know that we've ever received more grace from God than we're receiving right now because I don't know that our need has ever warranted more grace than what we're receiving. I don't want you to leave today saying, well, you're over lunch. You're having roasted preacher as your entree. And somebody says, well, what was the message about at church today? Well, Jeff screamed for 45 minutes that America is doomed. That's not the message. The message is an invitation. The message is for you to get honest with God about your own heart, for your family to get honest about not only your lineage, but the present reality of who you people are as a family. The invitation is for us to acknowledge who we have been as a church, where we have failed at times. I've failed as a leader at times. I have a lot of regrets. I know they're under the blood, but just because they're under the blood doesn't mean I don't need to mention them and come into agreement with Jesus on them. That's how they get under the blood. I come into agreement with him. And then as a nation, it's an invitation. What's the invitation? If the church will repent, the nation might. If the church doesn't repent, the nation can't. The nation unredeemed outside of the covenant of God cannot repent until and unless the church repents. Say, well, Jeff, what are we repenting of? That is a great question that we should pursue the Lord collectively for. There are national sins that we must own and acknowledge to honor the Lord by saying, we have grievously sinned against you. And though, Lord, we are not a government official, we're not the president, we're not Congress, we're not in legislation, we're not in judicial, we're not executors, we're not kings, we're not queens, but, Lord, we are the bride. And we say to our bridegroom, we repent on behalf of a people that won't. Show your mercy to this nation let us steward one last awakening, one last revival for the name of Jesus. Would you stand together?